In recognition of the Oscar nominations having just been announced this week, I thought I'd start us off by telling you a story. See, for me, personally, the Oscars are like Christmas, the Super Bowl, and my birthday all rolled into one. So I get that they're problematic in a lot of ways, and I know most sane people don't give a shit about them. But I do, and you can't talk me out of it. Many have tried. But one grievance I have with the Academy is that they moved the so-called Governor's Awards to a separate event away from the main telecast. So you might get a little sizzle reel of it during the big show, but it's kind of been shunted to the side, which really sucks because some of the greatest moments in Oscar history happened during these honorary awards, and if they hadn't been televised, we would have never seen them. Peter O'Toole got his Lifetime Achievement Award. Four-time Oscar winner for Best Actress Katherine Hepburn made her only appearance at the Oscars to present one of these awards. And legendary tough guy Kirk Douglas made his first public appearance after surviving a massive stroke and having to relearn how to speak. It was amazing and heartbreaking and beautiful to watch. I'd always been a fan, but he redefined what it meant to be tough for me in that moment. He'd made a career out of playing the man's man, but this was a real-life picture of bravery that he couldn't have possibly portrayed in a movie. You want a stunning example of non-toxic masculinity? Look at Kirk Douglas. Or so I thought. They used to say, never meet your heroes. Now you can't even Google them. I'm just going to take this opportunity to throw in a big fat trigger warning. This episode has a lot of talk about sexual assault, outdated conventions and norms in regards to consent and sexual agency, and violence towards women. And that's not even counting the stuff we see in the movie. See, today's film was made in the 1950s. And while I hate to admit it because some of my favorite movies were made in the 1930s, the 1950s was kind of a long time ago, so the ideas of gender roles don't measure up to the still-shifting dynamics of the 21st century. Then on top of that, it's the 1950s idea of what outdated gender roles must have been a thousand years earlier. So when you're watching the movie, if you watch the movie, and you get to the part where they start throwing axes at an imprisoned woman's head as a test ordained by the gods to see if she fucked around on her husband, just know, we know, a lot of this movie doesn't hold up. But a lot of the filmmaking does, especially the cinematography. Filmed in France in the fabulous fjords of Finland. Well, Norway, actually. But the alliteration was too delicious to pass up, and saying it was shot in Finland wouldn't be the least accurate thing about this movie. This was cinema's first crack at depicting Norse culture, since the Third Reich tried to claim the Vikings as part of their narrative of the inherent superiority of people who can't go out in the sun without hurting themselves. Based on a 1951 novel by Edison Marshall set in the 9th century and pulling as much from history as it does from legend, this is about as close to based on a true story as Hollywood was capable of at the time. The production design in particular tried really hard to get this right, and in all fairness, they probably succeeded more than they failed. The boats are accurate and there are no horns on the helmets, but old Kirk is clean-shaven, and we see way more of Tony Curtis's thighs than I ever thought possible. I mean, those are some sexy gams, but is a onesie period appropriate for a Viking man? Although this is the film set that brought Tony Curtis and Janet Lee together, allowing their daughter to elevate our slasher flicks and sell us probiotic yogurt, so maybe it's a net positive, even if a lot of it hasn't aged well. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So swash your buckles and sword your sandals, and grab an oar if your bodice isn't too tight, with a marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director, as we discuss 1958's slightly problematic sweeping saga of sex, swords, and sailing the poison sea, 
the Vikings. Call it in. It's danger close. Before we start today's episode, we want to take a minute to acknowledge the one-year anniversary of Danger Close. As you guys know, this project started because, you know, the Friendly Fire podcast we all really loved ended and we were like, oh, maybe it can come back. And it was became clear that that wasn't going to happen and that the only way that we were going to get a war film podcast was if we did it ourselves. And so I reached out, found Katie and Liam. We decided to do this. Eventually, you know, got on track, got on a schedule, got a Patreon, and we've had tons of support from all the listeners and the Facebook group. And I really, really could not have asked for better people and friends that I found to host the show with me. And we could not have asked for a more loyal following in the listeners, Jeff and Peter and Kyle and the people who do the posts on, you know, weapons and aircraft and all of that. And all you guys that participate in the group, it just, it really makes all the hard work worthwhile. And we do work on this a ton. It's a lot of editing. It's a lot of planning and preparation. And we're just really happy that we have a great audience and that this community project actually happened the way we intended for it to happen. And I did not know where we were going to be a year ago, but here we are now. And I'm just really grateful really happy and really excited to see what the next year of this project brings. I am so excited that we decided to do this. I saw the call out on it and I was like, very impulsively, I'm going to give that a try. And then I met these two amazing dudes and our producer, Nate, and our collaborator, Mike, and all of you wonderful people on the Facebook group. And it's been a whole life changing experience. And I am glad I got on the roller coaster. So thank you all for listening to us. I really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy the crazy nonsense that we bring to your ears every other week. And I know that like my role in this little project of ours is typically like the cynical dickhead. Uh, and I appreciate that. <laughs> Love it. But, you know, Dan, Katie, folks at home, I want you to know that I mean it like sincerely from the bottom of my heart. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Liam. <laughs> Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I'm here today, as usual, with my partners. Katie. And Liam. And today we're here to talk about the 1958 film, The Vikings. And this was Liam's pick, but... First, I'm going to hand it off to Katie for our mission briefing. Based on a modern retelling of the sagas of Ragnar Lodbrok and his sons, the Vikings aimed to be as historically accurate as possible. It worked to portray everything from the clothes to the boats to the attitudes of the time frame exactly as they would have been, and even filmed at some very gorgeous locations in Norway and France to enhance the realism. Even for today's standards, it is a stunningly beautiful film, with glorious vistas, well-designed sets, and, of course, the beautiful Tony Curtis and Janet Leigh as star-crossed lovers. Despite these facts and its huge popularity with audiences, critics were less than impressed. They generally found the film to be uncompelling, with an all-too-familiar story that felt paper-thin, more like a reskinned western than a true Viking epic. 
It did very well at the box office, but the lukewarm critical reception prevented it from gaining any serious awards. So this is a question where I want to look back on the film from the current day's perspective, rather than taking it in its time period, like I usually do. In a film that desperately tried to attain realism, but was limited due to the era it came out, how do you think the film's age affected your perspective on the story? Dan, why don't you go first? Because Liam will have a lot to say. I can already tell. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure we'll unpack that question in a, in a broader way for the rest of the episode. But as I've said a million times, I am newer than you guys to this era of film. So it was interesting to kind of not know what to expect. And this film to me was kind of somewhat equal parts sort of cheesiness a little bit in some of the big raid group fighting scenes where some of it was less than realistic, even to a layman like me, where it just kind of looked like play fighting to a certain extent mixed in with like gorgeous cinematography where, which as I did the research, I found out that a lot of it was, you know, pretty accurate being in fjords in Norway, et cetera. So yeah, it was a really a, a mix of things and as we'll get into the research on the myth and the lore that the story is based on by its inherent nature, the Viking lore is kind of a mix of real history and real people and things that were written 300 years later. So it's kind of inextricably hard to make something really historically accurate because a lot of it is based on myth and we don't actually know as much as you would think we do on the Vikings as a culture. And so I guess I went back and forth between being mildly horrified to the rapey scenes and treatment of women, but then to see a mix of these beautiful things being put on screen where I was like, wow, this is actually, if you just updated this to modern cinematography, I think this would look just as great. And I wouldn't change that much about these particular scenes. So yeah, it was a, a real mix for me. And uh, I'm curious to hear what Liam has to say, since we know he's seen this many, many times, whereas for Katie and I, it was our first time watching this. I have. I, I I grew up watching this movie, and it was one of the, like, it's one of those things that's like, I grew up watching this movie because my dad grew up watching this movie. Like, yep. I think my dad was nine when this came out, and he got to watch it in theaters when it happened. And this is that old fashioned kind of rollicking adventure story that like this was the Marvel movies of its day, basically. So many of the reviews referred to it as swashbuckling. Mm -hmm. it, well, it's not quite swashbuckling. There's not a lot of swash. No, but I think that was the <laughs> genre as it was thought of instead it, of it's that's see, even to me, I think that that's inaccurate, like swashbuckling. It's understood that there is a certain level of finesse that these characters are going to be presenting you with. And the Vikings is not that. <laughs> this is like scrotum goes on an adventure. Like this is just like this leads with the testicles in a way that swashbuckling <laughs> films do not. I mean, maybe we need to maybe we need to define swashbuckling a little bit, because when, when I see a scene of two boat like a boat raiding party boats and swords is is what i think critics generally refer to when they say a swashbuckling picture yeah but they're wrong but like swashbuckling <laughs> pictures wrong. are they, no well swashbuckling is like there's a certain amount of uh Panache. Bra bravado and like 
tight and rapiers, you know, like there's, it's, it's not like axes and battering rams and giant wooden shields and eyes getting eaten out by hunting hawks. It's way more seductive than rapey. Errol Flynn is swashbuckling. Of, well, of course. Tyrone Power was a swashbuckler. You know, they were smooth. They were good looking. They were like swinging from chandeliers and shit. I think the best modernish example I could think of what you're talking about is Mandy Patinkin and Carrie Elwes in Princess Bride. That right. fight between them is incredibly swashbuckling and they're so suave. Yeah, that is classic swashbuckliness uh, in a more modern not contemporary to us today anymore, but uh, more contemporary than The Princess Bride. Pirates of the Caribbean is a swashbuckling film. See, I was just going to say, I think the first thing that comes to my mind when I hear the word swashbuckling is pirates and specifically pirates boarding another ship, which Mm -hmm. if you just replace pirates with Vikings, I'm like, well, there's literally a scene of the Vikings boarding another ship with swords. I'm like, right. There is, but it's not not in a swashbuckly way. Is it not refined enough for you, Liam? It isn't. What? Okay. <laughs> they're not boarding the boat in a refined enough way. Is that they're what you're not? Saying? They're not boarding <laughs> the boat like pirates. They're boarding the boat like Vikings. Like there's a difference. Like barbarians. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't I don't believe that this is where we where we're going and why I'm getting hung up on this. But it's not a swashbuckling <laughs> movie. Okay. Okay. Maybe that scene is a little bit swashbuckly, but the rest of the film isn't. Can we maybe agree to that? Well, no, even, even that's not a swashbuckly scene. <laughs> so here's, here's where I could say, okay, I can see where you'd get confused. I did not think we were going to start with swashbuckling pedantry for this episode, but here we are, folks. But here we are, folks. <laughs> this is, this is why you guys like doing this with me is a part of it because you never know what's going to happen. That's I true. don't even fucking know what's going to happen, <laughs> but the scene when He's got the grappling hook and he's like mm-hmm. swinging it around over his head and he's going to like climb on up the, that scene is something that that's a thing that might happen in a swashbuckling film, but it handles it completely different. Like you see him swinging that thing forever and ever <laughs> and it keeps getting longer and you're like, oh man, he's going to throw that all the way up to the top of that tower. Whereas like. A swashbuckling movie, the guy would have found a vine to like magically swing from like the bottom of the tower up to the top of the tower for no reason. It's fantastical. Swashbuckling is not gritty. Okay. Okay. There is no grit in swashbuckling. There's no, there's no room for it. Cutthroat Island begs to differ. Cutthroat Island is also not a good movie. (laughs) (laughs) I, I will never agree with that. But it's, it's not gritty. Swashbuckling. Not gritty. I would agree with you that this movie is pretty gritty, especially in context of when it was made. Oh, especially for 1958. So I grew up watching this movie, but I also grew up watching a lot of old movies. Mm -hmm. So I don't think the age of the film really impacts how I view the storytelling necessarily. I think the storytelling is actually kind of ahead of its time. In this compared to like a lot of other things that would be of this non swashbuckling genre that were contemporary. Uh, this would be honestly like, except for there's no sand, this would be much more swords and sandals than it would be swashbuckling. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see that. I see what you're saying with that. I guess I asked 
this particular question, and Liam, I think you'll have more to speak to with this, is that I also grew up watching lots and lots of old movies. And like one of my first big memories is a three-year-old, probably, is my love of watching The Ten Commandments mm-hmm. and Cleopatra and all those Cecil B. DeMille type films where they are, quote unquote, historically accurate, but not right. in any way, shape or form. And not Cleopatra just as much as Ben-Hur or something like that. Well, are we talking like the the Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, Cleopatra? Correct. Correct. Okay. So I, I looked at I look at those movies and they feel like historically accurate in the same way that something like Pirates of the Caribbean is historically accurate. Like it, it it's kind of similar, but very much a fantasy world. And this movie hits in the middle for me. Like it has a little bit of those fantasy world aspects, but it also feels a lot more grounded in reality than a lot of pictures in the 1950s did. So, and I also think that there's like, this is never one that I would have put into the context of historical fiction. I don't know if, if the definition of historical fiction has changed, but like, I remember being in school and learning about like different types of fiction and historical fiction, they were like, it's not just, it takes place in history. Like historical fiction deals with historical characters Mm -hmm. and events. In a fictionalized setting. Yeah, Neil Stevenson's System of the World trilogy is exactly that. But I hear a lot of people say things are like historical fiction that fucking aren't historical fiction. You know what I mean? Like, right. no, you just said it in the Civil War. That doesn't mean it's historical fiction necessarily. Right. Like the System of the World trilogy has like the couple of main characters are fictionalized people. But you spend a significant amount of time with Huygens, Isaac Newton, Leibniz, who are all real people, and it it's, does its best to be historically accurate in portraying their attitudes and behaviors of the time period. Umberto Eco, who's uh, one of my favorite authors, wrote a novel called The Prague Cemetery, which he actually got into some trouble for because he set out to write a character that was the most vile character that ever existed in literature. Whoa. Like that was his stated goal, was he wanted to write the ultimate villain. That character, the main character who is that villain and is a terrible person, is the only fictional character in the entire book. And the the relatives of this character are actually based on people who really existed, even though the character itself is, is a complete fabrication. I thought I knew what historical fiction meant until we started having this conversation. So let me represent the average listener who, once again, may not be familiar with this. So, and to put it in context of films we have covered, personally, I think that based on prior knowledge, Master and Commander would fall under historical fiction, but now I have no idea if you would agree with that statement or not. So, Master and Commander is uh, the film. I can't Mm -hmm. speak for the book. Sure. The film. They talk about actual real people. Right. But none of the characters are historical figures. Right. Uh, If you look at Gettysburg, Gettysburg is historical fiction. Oh, yes. Because there are made up characters and there are actual characters that are supposedly acting and saying the things that they said and did. And I would say when that shakes the barley is another example of something that is historical fiction where it blends fictional people and real people and 
fictionalizes somewhat the real people's story. So if Wind That Shakes the Barley had a walk-on appearance from Michael Collins, then it would be historical fiction. They talk about Michael Collins a lot, though. They talk about people who exist, but they're not in the fiction. Okay, so let me get this straight. It's historical fiction if on top of being set in a real historical period, it actually includes historical figures. That was the understanding that I was given when I was in school. And that's why I was kind of asking, like, I hear people say things are historical fiction that don't fit into that definition. So I wasn't sure if the definition had changed. I think it's grown wider, probably because of the romance genre, honestly, which I have no judge, only love for the romance genre, even though I don't read the books. What's the alternative? So where would you, Liam, based on what you think, where would you place Master and Commander? Fiction. Okay. It, it's a period piece. <laughs> yeah, so there in you film, go. In film, it would be like a period piece. Okay. Is it historical fiction? Not exactly, because it doesn't touch on any historical people as characters in literature. It's a lot stricter in its, in its rulings. Um, but the reason why I bring all that up is because I had just assumed, and I've watched this all my life. I just treated it as a period piece rather than as historical fiction, but doing just even cursory looking into things for the podcast it might be a little bit more historical fiction as as this story can get with the limited knowledge that we still have today versus the much more limited knowledge that they had in 1958 of what this actual history was. But, you know, like this was based on a book by Edison Marshall, which is based on ancient, ancient, not necessarily myths, but. Historical epic stories. So the book would be considered almost historical fiction. And that was like Edison Marshall was one of these authors that um, another big one of the time was Lawrence Schoonover. They wrote these great old yarns, you know, these like great mm -hmm. old adventure stories. You know, um, I think one of his Edison Marshall's big ones was the pagan king, which was one of the big like strip down what are the nuts and bolts real things about King Arthur. Yep. Trying to separate out that fact from mythology, but also still tell a good yarn about it. And again, some of the, I haven't read a lot of Edison Marshall. I've read a little bit more Lawrence Shuniver and they're great stories. They don't necessarily hold up well outside of the 1950s sometimes, but damn, I wish they did. With historical fiction in film and to a certain extent in literature, it really depends on what era you're talking about. And the thing is, is it can change from being intended to be historical fiction to just plain fiction, depending on when you're absorbing the story. In the Clan of the Cave Bear book, those books are all set prehistory during the Ice Ages. And at the time when they were published, the author Gene Owl had spent six years researching, going to the places that are present in the books, talking to archaeologists, getting all of the most recent detail. And then by the time she wrote the most recent book, which was 10 years ago, all of that data that she had had been proven incorrect. So she then has to adjust, you know, fifth book in that, oh, yeah, these people can't actually talk. So and I think this movie falls into that kind of category because it's from the clothing to the gender relationships 
to a lot of the personal stuff in this, it is accurate as of the time. But now we look at it and we're like, no, that's not how it actually was. Well, it's kind of like the Jurassic Park problem. Yeah. When Jurassic Park came out, I don't even know if it was knowledge. It certainly wasn't common knowledge that dinosaurs had feathers. No, they didn't know that. Jurassic Park was extremely accurate according to contemporary archaeologists for the time when it came out in 93 or 94. Yes. It's just that a lot has changed since then, which is the problem Katie's talking about. But they keep fucking making Jurassic Park movies and TV Uh. shows and things like that where it's like, okay, so now we have to retcon why we got the dinosaurs wrong because we can't really change the dinosaurs now. As my problematic fave, Lindsay Ellis says, thanks, I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's just an interesting thing to me that it's like, well, fuck it. We can't change the dinosaurs. Like right, we're now we're now in our own. Like if this were the Marvel universe, we're now in the Jurassic Park timeline right. where dinosaurs never had feathers. So this leads us right into some of our historical research here. And before I forget, let me give credit where credit is due to basically all of Liam's friends. <laughs> this is really why we leave Liam why we keep Liam around is uh, everybody thinks I'm really just a source for better people. Yeah. We just have access to all these PhDs through Liam. And so that's why he's still on the show. Everybody. That's what's really going on. (laughs) Thanks for keeping me valid, Pat. (laughs) So Liam's friend, Dr. Patrick Connor, who has his PhD in medieval English literature, Dave Feldman, who's kind of our local sword nerd. Dave. And uh, his wife, Sam, who's currently studying archaeology, actually. So she had some things to add to this. Dr. Connor helped us out a little bit with the timeline, because the first question I had for him was, okay, when is this supposed to take place? Like, do we have a year? Do we have any specificity? And he wrote a couple of pages on. He was very careful to mention that this is not anything that he knows for sure. He just kind of gave his um, best estimate. And so based on the fact that Ragnar was a real person and he had real sons and based on the age of Kirk Douglas's character, he's kind of like, "Eh, definitely ninth century. This is all happening in the ninth century CE, somewhere in between the year 825 and 866. And the reason why 866 is so specific is because the assault on the castle that we see at the end of the movie is most likely based on the Viking attack on the Northumbrian city of York, which was captured in 866, and that is recorded. So that's how we know that this is set in the 9th century. However, once you start looking into Ragnar Lothbrok, who I I haven't watched the Vikings TV show, but I also believe he's the main character of that TV show. He's like the dude on all the posters. So... He was indeed a real person, and he had sons, and the sons are the ones who then went into this raid in Northumbria and basically went from Scandinavia to eastern England and did these raids. But most of these sagas, the Scandinavian sagas that talk about this, were all written like 300 years after these events. Um, So several centuries later, and so 10th through the 12th century. So you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt in terms of the details. But because of the records in England, it's hard to say the English records here, because really until 1066, England wasn't really a unified place. 
at this time, what we now call the UK, but specifically the island of Great Britain, was a bunch of different kingdoms um, for the next several hundred years. Now, people in the eastern part of Great Britain can still sort of trace some ancestry back to when Ragnar Lothbrok was killed by the Anglo-Saxon Northumbrians according to the lore, in a pit of snakes as opposed to a pit of hungry wolves or dogs, the way the film depicts. But this was the inciting incident for a large invasion of England by the Vikings known as the Great Heathen Army. And this is what eventually led to the assault and capture of York and subsequently created the Danegeld. So there were four Anglo-Saxon kingdoms at that time. Northumbria in the north, East Anglia, Mercia, and Wessex. Since the raids had begun nearly a century before, Anglo-Saxon leaders both fought and paid off Viking raids in the past, payments being referred to as Danegeld, and attempted to do so with the great heathen army on multiple occasions, but basically were unsuccessful, and that area did end up getting conquered by the Vikings, which was then divided in two between the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and the so-called Dane law, where Danish or Norse leaders would hold power. It should be noted that in Dane law regions, a merging of Saxon and Norse culture seems to have been in evidence in architecture, dress, coinage, and other physical cultures. Settlers from Scandinavia are also in evidence, especially through the regions under the Dane law. So essentially, Eastern England can still trace its roots back to the Vikings because of this big invasion that happened in the ninth century. So again, we've got a mix of characters based on real people who Mm -hmm. did real things and real events and real battles. But again, a lot of the history is written 300 years later, you know, between a hundred and 300 years later And we'll get into it later, but modern archaeology, contemporary archaeology has also had new finds that have been updated since the mid 50s. And so it's kind of like the original history this is based on is already confusing and convoluted because it's a little bit like, for example, no one really knows whether Ragnar Lothbrok was from Denmark, Sweden or Norway. The sagas clash that much that there isn't even a consensus on that. And so when you're talking about making something historically accurate, it's like, well, historically accurate based on what? Certain things like the ships, which we'll get into, were based on actual Viking ships that they found. So they were able to really make an accurate representation on that. When was Ayala a, uh, I, I feel like I was reading that, uh, or I read that Ayala the king was actually, like that was actually the king's name. That is correct. So indeed, in the lore or in the sagas, Ragnar was captured by King Ayala of Northumbria and thrown into a pit of snakes to die. So that is where that part of the story is, again, based on a real character who it appears really did kill uh, Ragnar. And then the rest of the story kind of goes from there. So, yeah, again, the interesting part is that there's mixed accuracy to the original lore from the 10th to 12th centuries And then there is mixed accuracy to the film and book from the 50s. So there's a lot going on here. But it's also cool that like it is Ragnar's two sons that then led this invasion, which them being secret brothers is like the big like that's the linchpin of the whole plot, really, as far as right. 
So I think that's cool that they played with that a little bit that like these guys don't even know that they're brothers through the entire invasion. Right. As far as I can tell, that's completely fictionalized, but obviously I haven't read these sagas, but that's something that they played around with here. I like that take on it. You know, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. this is not his, of course, not a documentary. Right. I like that fictionalization of it. You know, I think that's a cool way to take us a history that we obviously don't know a lot about and just spin a yarn with it. Oh, yeah. And I think making Eric a slave who is then fighting with them, but is also in the final fight against the main character is great writing. I mean, those characters are cool and interesting. Yeah. And critics at the time had such an issue with this story because they in in modern parlance, you would call it basic is how they described this film, (laughs) essentially. (laughs) Yeah, basic. So there was so much criticism about this and it was uh, often which would have been very appropriate for the time, boiled down to this is just a Western in Viking clothes. There just wasn't a lot of complexity to it. And it was very obvious from the beginning, you know, all of these criticisms that, I mean, I guess they do have some merit. I'm not going to say that this is a unique story, but Mm -hmm. I also think that that's not the goddamn point of a story about the Vikings. Yeah, it's like, what movie did they think they were going to go see? Right. I mean, this isn't Alfred Hitchcock. This isn't Billy Wilder's The Vikings. This is a <laughs> historical fucking epic. Which I'm sorry. Am- imagine Billy Wilder's The Vikings. The, the, the Venn diagram for people that will find what you just said hilarious is very small. <laughs> so I, th- I think there was a lot of expectation for this film that I don't really understand, but... The end of the 50s and early 60s, before the repeal of the Hayes Code, critics were very hungry for something different. Mm. And the studios were like, sorry, we're not going to give you that. Now, what's the what's the timeline? Because I don't know off the top of my head. Was this right before or right after Spartacus? Because that might have something to do with their expectations. I'm going to guess after while Katie looks it up, just because I know that uh, Kirk Douglas produced and had a lot of say in this film, so I'm guessing. Well, he also be- did with Spartacus. You would be incredibly wrong, though, Dan, because Spartacus came out in ni- two years later in 1960. Boom. And I mean, Spartacus is directed by Stanley Kubrick, so who was who was doing it under a hidden name because he was kind of ashamed of making it, which says a lot about Stanley Kubrick. Spartacus was like a cultural touchstone. So if Spartacus had come out first, I'd be like, well, maybe I could see why your expectations were a little. I, mm-hmm. but this is a perfectly serviceable, it's, it's a magic baby story. Yeah, very much so. It's Moses. It's fucking Willow. It's King Arthur. King Arthur. Like, it's just all like these, it's the magic baby story of prophecy that like, oh, right. this is my secret child that I have to send off somewhere, but he'll come back with the necklace. It's the telltale sign of the thing. But I think it, it's played enough differently that it's interesting. It is. You know, he's a slave, not a up and coming young nobleman or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like they so off that character so often is in this type of story. Yeah. And he never he escapes, but he never really escapes that level of class in that culture. Even when he comes back, it's just that he's this weird anomalous slave that. Well, he does end the movie as being like king of the Vikings and king of England. So. Right. At the very end. I'm talking about I'm talking about like 
midway point through where he goes back to the Vikings and proves, you know, this is what I did for Ragnar and all that stuff. That elevation doesn't happen until the very, very end of the film. I would like to talk about Tony Curtis's character arc in this film. Go for it. I think this is a story about one man's quest for pants. (laughs) (laughs) I think that Tony Curtis really just wants somebody to give him some goddamn pants. (laughs) But his butt looks so nice without the pants, though. He is running around in a Viking romper for the better part of this movie. And he's like, man, I really just wish I would have some pants. And then like (laughs) the English Lord is like, I'll get you out of there and I'll give you some pants. And he's like, awesome. I'm out. Get me some pants. He's like, well, first we have to go to England and then I'll get you pants. And then like the witch is like, oh, don't worry. You'll meet a magic woman and she's going to give you pants. Does the woman give him (laughs) pants? No, she doesn't give him pants. So he has to take his secret dad to the king and be like, I will trade my father for pants. And they're like, no, in fact, I'm going to cut your hand off for even asking for pants. And then he's like, oh man, now I have this really long wrist that is just as long as my other hand. And I still don't have any pants. And so he goes back to Kirk Douglas and he's like, Hey, I know you hate me. I know you were the one who took my pants in the first place, but I've been through a lot and I just like some pants, please. And he's like, okay, we can go get you some pants. But when we're done getting you pants, we're going to kill each other. And whoever still has pants at the end of it, they win. I feel like I immediately need to go rewatch this under this pants premise because it's going to just color it in a totally different shade. It's the pants theory. It's Tony Curtis wants some pants. Just to tie it back into the research. Oddly enough, the research says Liam is right. He did just want some pants. Oddly enough, A, Tony Curtis should have been wearing pants the whole time because slave or not, Vikings just did not wear, you know, rompers slash rompers slash legless outfits. I feel like it's implied that he's just wearing like a leather tunic and there's nothing underneath. Right. And I was like, I feel like that's not... That is not going to fly in that climate. Yeah, they were really trying to pump up the sexiness of Tony Curtis, which, A, doesn't really need any pumping up. I'm like, he's sexy enough on his own. He is wearing a lot of eyeliner in this movie. He's often wearing a lot of eyeliner. So it's not just that the outfit's a little historically inaccurate, but it's also that for the Vikings at the time, it would have been obviously a super cold climate. And it's like, oh, great. They're going from potentially Denmark or Southern Sweden to like Eastern England. It's like none of these places are warm. And also in an interview they did uh, shortly after the release of the film, both Kirk Douglas and Tony Curtis said that they were cold (laughs) the entire time they were filming. The water in the fjord, which again, to remind people was in Norway, was just above freezing. And the air temperature was only slightly warmer. So the character, the actor, and the real Viking would have been super cold the whole time. That's why he needs some pants. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so did. Tony Curtis, I don't know why they kept trying to put him into these swords and sandal epics. You don't? For the brunt of his career. No. Did you see that, butt? Because motherfucker talks like he's from the Bronx. Always. <laughs> Yes, no, Manhattan and the Bronx. Manhattan I was born the at the uh, Flower Hospital on 105th Street. And-, and he is capable of 
better things than he gives us in Swords and oh, Sandal God, epics, yeah. like Sweet Smell of Success, Some Like It Hot. Dude is actually a good actor. Yeah, he could deliver some lines, and his love scenes are steamy. Oh my and I, God. I, I like, hate so, Some Like It Hot, but he's definitely the best part of it. I, I love Some Like It Hot, but I, I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point that is not this movie. That's a Marilyn Monroe film? Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Jack Lemmon's the other person in that one, isn't it? Yes. Love Jack mm-hmm. Lemmon. And I love Jack Lemmon. He's too. so good. Mm-hmm. But we're not talking about Some Like It Hot. And I have to remember that I should talk about the movie that we're supposed to be talking about. We're talking about the Vikings, Liam. Tony Curtis. Yeah. So Tony Curtis has a voice that does not fit in Swords and Sandal epics, but they kept putting him in them because reasons, I guess. He's pretty. Gorgeous. Very popular. So here's a, a just an interesting anecdote in one of his earlier films when he was like young heartthrob, Son of Alibaba. Mm-hmm. It's a B swords and sandal thing where he has the understanding is that he gave this line reading that haunted him for the rest of his career. And the line reading, because he still had his very thick New York accent, was Yonder lies the palace of my father. That was never actually said, kind of like how Play It Again, Sam, was never actually said in Mm -hmm. Casablanca, Mm -hmm. trying to find like the exact clip that he said this in. But apparently he didn't actually say it. But this is from Curtis's own autobiography. Son of Alibaba was the movie where I gave the line that people unjustly made fun of for years afterwards. There's a scene where I'm on on horseback and Piper is sitting next to me and I say to her, yonder in the Valley of the Sun is my father's castle. After the film came out, Debbie Reynolds, who would later marry Eddie Fisher, went on television and said, did you see the new guy in the movies? They call him Tony Curtis, but that's not his real name. In his new movie, he's got a hilarious line where he says, yonder lies the castle of my father. You could chalk her ridicule up to my New York accent, but when she mentioned the issue of my real name on television, I began to wonder if there was something anti-Semitic going on there. I'm probably just hypersensitive on that topic, but either way, she got the line wrong. Unfortunately, her version stuck with the public, and for a while it became popular for people to quote the incorrect line in a ridiculous New York accent. Years later, Hugh Hefner came up to me at a party and said, Yonder lies the castle of my father. I looked at him coolly and said, Hef, I never said that. Then don't tell anybody, he said. It makes a great movie story. Wow. So he has a, I'm assuming he has a Jewish surname originally? I would, yeah, yeah, I assume. I don't know what his real name is, but. His real name is Bernard Schwartz. Schwartz. Emmanuel Schwartz and Helen Schwartz were his parents. Yeah, he was a, he was fucking hot. Yeah, he was. He was gorgeous. Janet Lee thought so too. And hence we get Jamie Lee Curtis. They made a baby together. From the pants theory, let's move on to the sad pants theory. Or not really a theory because it just happens in this film. There is a significant amount of rape discussed in this movie from the very beginning Mm -hmm. where we find out that uh, the unborn child that will eventually become Tony Curtis is the product of rape between Ragnar and Enid. And it just gets worse from there. Yeah, it's bad that like the uh, the only actual rape that we see in the film is it gets worse from there. Like that's rough, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's so. And this is one of those things that's generally now considered not in any way historically accurate, and that Viking women were incredibly equal in regards to that kind of um, treatment in society. It was not 
not the norm that it's kind of portrayed as in this film. But in Conquest, it was different. For lack of a better term, the the receivers of the rape here are not Viking women, right? They're all uh, Northumbrian women. Yes. There is a lot of like, I'm going to grab you and throw you on the table and pour a horn of ale into your face. Like, now that was all consensual. Is it? In the world of the film. Like, oh, I see what you're saying. You're talking about in the feast scenes. The girls are like trying to like pull him off of each other so they can kiss him with a mouthful of beer. It's not good. No. But it's not rape. In those instances, it does appear that the intent is to show just that they're like all having a good time in the Viking scenes. Maybe not the girl who was strapped into the boob holding slash gallows slash the testing wheel. Odin's test, which has no historical basis behind it whatsoever. I know. And they were just like, bring out the testing wheel. And I'm like, you guys do this enough to just call it the testing wheel? Does it test other things too? Or is it just this one thing? Well, and it also conveniently has the spot to like hold up her boobs and make them front and center, as opposed to normally a device like that would just be big enough for your neck. What's so she can, she can look at you while you're throwing the axes at her braids. Uh, Right. (laughs) It's fucking Bjorn Chumpinson or whatever his name is, who's like throwing axes and like (laughs) he accused her, but he looks really sad that he's missing the braids or I don't know. His, his performance was weird to me. Mixed. It's very mixed and like, okay, what does this guy want to actually happen? Yeah, it's like he he just doesn't want to look like a chump in front of the rest of his Viking friends who can't throw an axe and hit something. Like if he hit her, fine. If he hit the braids, fine. But like this whole missing, it's going to get him killed. Not acceptable. Three misses and we drown him. (laughs) Also, everyone is drunk as shit. I think (laughs) the rape and conquest is incredibly accurate, unfortunately, and that that was certainly... Not just for fun and pleasure, it was a tactic of militaries at that time and in a way to subjugate societies and propagate their own people among, you know, their conquests, as it were. Mm -hmm. Breed them out, as they say in in Braveheart. If we can't get them out, we'll breed them out. Yeah, I I think in terms of the history, the depiction of rape in conquest is more accurate than the treatment of wi- of their own women in Viking society. Yes. Because oh, incredible! I was surprised actually to find, and this came from Dave. He was talking about how. So this is more recent. So in certainly in nineteen, you know, fifty five. Th- well, yeah, yeah. Or whenever the book was written, you know, like. Well, fifty two is the book, but I'm again, I'm always trying to subtract a year or two for when the film was being made and planned and stuff, as opposed to like right. the year is the year of release, right? So I'm like, yes, although at. Th- at that time, like in the studio system, it was a lot tighter. They called it the dream factory for a reason. But I would say average is probably what a year from start to like making it to theaters. My guess would be something on location, not on the back lot. This might have been a year long project, but I don't think that it would have been like a two year ordeal. On average, I generally try and say a year prior to the release, basically, if I'm talking about production and stuff. Yeah, late 50s. Yeah, late 50s. So this is one of those points in the research where 
you can't really hold the people doing the research in the late 50s to this because this wasn't necessarily known. But interestingly, many of the graves of Viking warriors that have been found over time recently have been revealed to be females and shield maidens. And this is a recent interpretation supported by both archaeology and somewhat by the sagas themselves. So they're completely absent from the 1958 film. And some of the sagas do talk about Viking women participating in the combat in pretty equal fashion to the men. And so you can kind of hold their feet to the fire a little bit that they didn't include that. But again, we've had uh, more recent archaeological discoveries that have actually confirmed that, that graves that were thought to be of Viking men warriors are actually of women. And so I, I didn't get into too much detail on exactly what kinds of roles the women would have taken in combat. But when you see the shield wall, for example, which is pretty cool and I think relatively accurate of them attacking the castle and hiding behind the shields and having this sort of organized fashion of coming out, shooting the arrow, hiding behind the shield again. So Viking women would have definitely been involved in that back then. So that's well. And also at the same time, this might have been, and again, I'm, I'm not speaking with authority on this because I don't know uh, the answer to it, but I would not be surprised if they knew that there were Viking women in the battles and because 1950s, they decided not to show that because it would like break with the cultural norms, the cultural norms of the audience, sure. not so much of the Vikings. Well, and I've actually read a little bit about this, and that was something because that was only discovered within the past few years, is my understanding, or at least publicly known. It was probably known in academia before then because they just assumed. They just assumed if you were buried with, you know, a sword and fighting gear, you were a dude. Mm-hmm. They didn't actually do any checking until very recently. And then they were like, oh, shit. Your hips are weird, mister. Because in the 50s, it wouldn't have been thought of that women would participate in such brutal violence, even though women had been going to war in World War One, World War Two. Like, it just was not culturally thought of Mm -hmm. at the time so now again with the genres that we were kind of talking about earlier on in both westerns or in film noir Mm -hmm. there would have been a a female combatant at times in the form of like a soubrette character who would often like sacrifice herself to save the hero because she's secretly in love with him but she's the bad girl so she can't end up with him but like that's not going to find its way into a sword and sandal epic you even get one of those in the swashbuckler, the Seahawk, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, like a, a bad girl pirate kind of character, mm-hmm. but it's not not in Swords and Sandals. And I think they don't do a bad job with Janet Lee's character, Morgana. I think she's pretty nuanced, especially for the character she's portraying of this time. I mean, Janet Lee is an amazing actress and definitely gave it her all, but she is very strong in a way that wasn't often recognized in film like in particular in the scene between her and einar where he's all geared himself up for some aggressive rape and he's gonna rape her into loving him and then he goes there and she's like i see what you want no not giving you that just gonna lay here you can do that but i'm not gonna fight back hurt me hurt me said the masochist no said the sadist exactly it's that kind of thing of like okay and she diffuses it by her own willingness to be like, I- I'm not going to give in to what you want. 
I know what it is. Here's, here's a question that I have. I am curious if this is fleshed out more in the book or in actual history or just what your guys' thoughts are from the context clues that we get in the film. Einar's mother. Yes. Are we to assume that like they just liked it rough or that they were into consensual non-consent, her and Ragnar? Because the way he talks about it, he talks about it very fondly. We, she's dead by now, but it's like, obviously she spe- held a very special place in his heart and knowing that a Viking woman would not be treated the same as like an object of conquest. Are we meant to think that like he raped her or did they just like fucking like punch each other during sex? I think it's meant to be implied that in order for him to marry her or have her love or whatever, he had to show that he is capable of overpowering her. And that's certainly a cultural thing that the Vikings, I'm I'm not, obviously nobody knows exactly because the Vikings weren't extremely prolific with their philosophical writings, but there's this concept of to show your man enough to take over the woman, you have to be able to overpower her. And there's a certain level of coquetry with the women where it's, oh, well, if you want me, you better show that you're strong enough to take me and to, which means you're able to provide for me and that you care enough and you're willing to fight for me. That type of thing is, I think, what the movie is trying to say. Right. Problematic as fuck. We're not going to lie. Yeah. Problematic as fuck anyways. But like, I wonder if the movie is able to skirt that line of the overwhelming rape subplot that is continually happening throughout like half of the dialogue as a clash of cultures. Oh, I see what you're saying. Is she just like not on board with the Viking way of wooing or is he a horrible rapist? Oh, I think it can be both. Right. Absolutely. But I'm saying like, is this how the film felt it was navigating things? Because even her, her discussions with Eric are about, they're not about rape, but they're about like, oh, well, you're a heathen and I'm a good Christian and I don't, Mm -hmm. I can't be with a heathen. Our souls just can't touch. I think there's also a practicality from the readings that I've done and, and, and stuff about women's perspective during that time. There is a certain practicality in knowing that you don't get a lot of choice, like how Morgana doesn't. I mean, she doesn't get a choice in whether or not she's going to marry Ayala. She just gets told this is what's happening to you. And if you don't like it, that's actually your problem. And you should probably feel bad about it because this is your duty and you should be happy to be doing your duty. It's it's your duty because you're a princess and this is for the good of your people. Exactly. You're not you. You are your position. You are your family. You are your role. Exactly. And that for women of a certain class was the thing. All of their perspective. That's how it was for them, at least. That's how it's portrayed now. I don't want to marry him. Why are you being such a selfish bitch? Can't you think of the people? Right. And I think there's that aspect going into play here of ninth century. Marrying for love wasn't exactly normal. Mm-hmm. You, know, you get married for for purpose. It always feels anachronistic to me whenever they're like, but I don't love him. So I think what we're looking at here is the juxtaposition between people in the 1950s and the way they would depict sort of pre-English societies like the Northumbrians, but you know, 
quote unquote Christian and societies that we know a little bit more about and are maybe more similar to ours, as opposed to the Vikings who are less well-known, more mysterious and more foreign, which is funny because you get this contrast that's almost like, you know, at the level of far Eastern Muslims during the Crusades versus Christians, when really you look at a map and you're like, well, we're just talking about people maybe going from Denmark to England, which nowadays is like a Ryanair flight of like an hour or something. Like they could take a boat there and never lose sight of land, apparently. Yeah, I mean, close. Yeah, for sure. They're like, well, you can't leave the shoreline. You'll get you'll fall off the sea. As someone who's been playing a lot of civilization lately, that is definitely accurate to the time period. They did not have cartography yet, so they could not leave more than X number of tiles from the shoreline. Well, and a big part of that is also, so magnetic compasses were not a thing. They did not believe the earth was flat, so it wasn't about, you know, being afraid of falling off the edge of the earth. But it's just that they didn't, other than the stars, they didn't have a really good way to navigate. So in fog and in the channel, like you were could potentially get lost and potentially could crash into the shore. But the point I was trying to make is that a lot of what you guys are saying is true in that the Vikings are being depicted as these pagan. So I get what Liam is saying in that part of it is that they're trying to depict the Vikings as a different society that was physically stronger and more aggressive. And so that could take a part in their courtship as well to a certain extent. And who knows? I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong. But again, we're talking about people from a 1950s perspective. And so there's also this interest in, or maybe it's uh, subconscious, but this contrast between sort of Christian society versus pagan society where these, you know, just like the Germanic tribes during Roman times. Yeah. We're all kind of called barbarians or... You know, even Viking, you know, I thought about it when I was doing the research. I was like, wait, who were the Vikings exactly? Like the Vikings aren't a tribe or a specific peoples. These are this is kind of the term that's been passed down through generations. But interestingly, in Old Norse and current Icelandic, the word Vik simply means bay. And so the nearest meaning that we can find for the word Viking. is So they lived in the Bay Area. (laughs) You could say that. You're a Viking. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, look at me. Tall, strong, blonde. That's me. You're very blonde. So Viking can be translated to Bay Dweller. And for Icelandic people that Dave has actually like hung out with and talked to on this subject, the term townie is used. (laughs) And so I think we're talking about these populations that lived in villages where obviously being seafaring and doing a lot of fishing they had they built the towns on these in these fjords on these bays and had access to the sea another thing about vikings is that often the image that we conjure is of this like raping and pillaging and burning down villages and like that did happen but a lot more of what the vikings did was trade So a lot of it was seafaring, which was also traveling on the sea in boats, but also down rivers. This is how they actually laid siege to Paris at one point. And also, interestingly, the etymology of the word Russia and Russian comes from the Rus people who were under the umbrella of Vikings. So it's really interesting that when you look at the Vikings, 
it's not even that well known what exact populations we are talking about here because that's not their name. It's the same way the Romans used to just kind of refer to the Germanic peoples as one group or barbarians or the Celts. But really, it's like they're a foreign entity, which on their own, they had their own subdivisions and their own cultures. But of course, the winners write the history. And later on, it's just like, oh, yeah, these barbarian hordes came over and raped our women and blah, blah, blah. So it's really hard to parse that out, especially since the history that we're starting off with is kind of mixed with myth, etc. The other thing I found interesting is that I kind of heard the rumors of the rape in this film and and I was just kind of like took a deep breath and I was like, oh man, we're gonna have to sit through a bunch of rape scenes again. Mm-hmm. Like that is one of the roughest parts of this podcast is having to sit through a lot of like violence towards women, which is just like and it's not that like people killing each other is fun to watch necessarily, but you well, know sometimes was, it's fun to watch. I mean, sure. They make whole movies based on this premise. Right. But the violence towards women, it's just kind of, it depends on how tactfully it's done, what the context is. Like, is there a narrative structure to this or is it just being done for literally entertainment back in the fifties? So anyways, like not the most comfortable thing to watch, but I was actually surprised that in this film, how much of it is implied and off screen and talked about as opposed to like Mm -hmm. actually showing a rape scene in Dr. Zhivago. There's a lot of rape going on in that film as well, but there's also a lot of fade to black and kind of like not being super graphic about it. It's hinted at and it's for audiences. Now it's hinted at for audiences. Then it's incredibly obvious. This is what's going on. Oh, it happened for sure. It's just not that much of it is on screen, but Also, back to kind of what you guys were saying about uh, sort of a women's agency at the time. And like, yeah, definitely, especially amongst the nobles, it's like, yeah, marriage was a way of securing relationships amongst families and classes and kingdoms. It's like they didn't care whether a woman was in love or wanted to marry that man or whatever. So I think also that was pretty typical. What What I found a little lacking here is that And I can't tell whether this is just Morgana doing her best to fend off Einar the best she can when she's like, well, I hate you and I don't love you. I love Eric. And I'm like, what do you mean you love Eric based on a scene where he put his blue eyes in front of you and was just like, we need to be together because, you know, blah, blah. But I was like, I I just didn't really see a moment where this character. No, that's that's typical 50s kind of filmmaking shit. That is that's that's the the bathwater that you can't throw the baby out with. And and also in a culture, in American culture at the time, I mean, maybe we're talking about 10 years earlier, but certainly between the 30s and 40s and 50s, where women had much less agency, but also the way romance was talked about and the way, I mean, I was even reading some blurb the other day that was like some pictorial, I can't remember the date on it, but it was like how to kiss a woman. It was basically like, if she says no, that's just part of the game. You know, it's like right. she, she's trying to be classy. So she has to sit. So it's that old Christmas song of, you know, um, right. Won't you stay? Type exactly. Thing. So between the myths from a Christian perspective about pagans and about barbarians, and then on top of it, you add the culture of the 30s through the 50s. It's really interesting to see what ability to make decisions about love these women characters are even given at all so i agree katie that morgana is shown to have strength and like she doesn't just give in to einar she's like obviously physically here you can overwhelm me but you know what 
you're not getting my consent and you want me to fight you because you guys like that, I'm not going to fight you either. So, like, you're not going to get much out of what you want out of me. Fight me. I will not lift one finger to assist you. Which was great to see. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm glad they're showing her fighting him off in any way she can. I just felt like the love story with Eric was a little underwhelming where I'm kind of like, yes, okay. Like, what do you mean you're in love with Eric? You guys had one scene where he's trying to be philosophical about why you should. And and okay, he's not raping you. So points for him. (laughs) Other than that, it's not like it was all that romantic. That was what won her hand. It was, uh, he didn't rape her. He's the only one who hasn't like physically assaulted me. I guess he's the love of my life. Yeah. and, And he's not Frank Thring. Like nobody yeah, wants right. to marry Frank no, Thring, no. right? Who's like thirty years older and you know creepy. Uh, and he literally calls her a child when mm-hmm. he explains that he is going to marry her and that he will be having a baby by this child. And I was like, several oh, times, sir, and I, yes, sir, you're gross, <laughs> sir. I know, I know, it was, I know, it was appropriate for the time period that the film is set in. It was appropriate for the time period and nobody gave a shit in the 50s. That too. So I don't mean to ruin our good time. Oh boy. I don't want to, but I'm, I'm going to, I think. You can't do to. it anyway. I am. I can't not. I have to. It's in my contract. <sighs> Rip the bandaid off, Liam. I found something out that I didn't like. Oh boy. Uh-oh. About who? About Kirk Douglas and a young... Natalie Wood and how Natalie Wood, when she was an up and comer, like just trying to get some roles after she was no longer a child star in Miracle on 34th Street, her mother sent her up to Kirk Douglas's room and waited for her in the car with her younger sister. And she came back disheveled and crying. Did we did we announce uh, which episode of Liam ruins everything? This uh, the story is a part of. I've I've spent my life uh. loving Kirk Douglas, and it is this is a tough one for me to wrap my brain around because to me Kirk Douglas had always been like on the right side of so many parts of history. You know what yeah. I mean? He was my guy, and then I found out he raped Natalie Wood in a hotel room when she was like 16, 15 years old, something like that. This was brought up in uh, the book that Natalie's sister published recently. Oh, okay. It's not an excuse to, I'm not excusing this by saying this. I am rather condemning it even more by saying this. That her mom sent her up there? No. That's the part that that, like, I'm just like, everybody (laughs) sucks now. Like why? Yeah. Because at, during that time period, 15, 16, 14 years old was considered fair game, right. we will say. And I know this because my mother, who was born in the late 50s, experienced that same kind of bullshit in her teen years. And it was considered like just normal that you were going to get hit yes. on by 50-year-old men on mm. 14-year-old girls. Mm. And that, yes. that was just how it was. And honestly, we're, we're kidding ourselves if we think... That that doesn't happen today. I think it's a little less acceptable. We today. have it. We have an idea that it is not something to like. Oh, roll your eyes at grandpa! Like you know, it's it's right. not it's not that level at the time. It was pretty much flat out acceptable. But I haven't read 
Natalie Wood's sister's book, the articles that I read led me to believe that her age was not the only problem with the lack of consent in the situation. Right. Had she been 40 and things played out the exact same way, it still would have been rape. Ah. So that hurts my heart, but I know, I know, I know. We're going to talk about more Kirk Douglas movies. Oh, yeah. We haven't even talked about Paths of Glory. Yeah. Dude did some of the greatest war films. So we're going to be talking about him again. But if there was ever a time that this is relevant, it is relevant in this movie because it made this movie harder to watch for me this time. Because I found this out like, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. And I'm just like, oh, man, I'm going to have to talk about this. It's important to be honest about about this shit. It is. It, you know, if if I didn't know about it, then somebody listened to the episode and be like, well, you know, he really raped somebody. I'd be like, what the fuck? I didn't know that. So in the most awkward segue of the podcast ever. Speaking of Kirk Douglas. <laughs> let's talk about Kirk Douglas's performance and everybody else's performances. Because I, I would say usually in a film, Kirk Douglas, when he's in the movie, he just fucking owns everything. He's the one that you're looking at all the time. He's the one you're most interested in. But then you put that wig on Ernest Borgnine and it's just like, God damn, I don't know where to look anymore. Yeah. And I think. The nice thing is that the big four people in this, which is Kirk Douglas, Tony Curtis, Ernest Borgnine, and Janet Lee, are all equal players in this. Like they are all strong actors and give captivating performances on their own and are very much their own character. And so I think Kirk Douglas is does not overshadow these folks like he so often does, which isn't a bad thing or a good thing. It just depends on the film. But you know, mm-hmm. we get so many great performances in this. Ernest Borgnine looks like he is just having the time of his fucking life. Oh my god. Such a good time. The entire movie. He's just laughing. Just laughing all the time, no matter what's being going on. He's dying and he's still laughing as he jumps into the pit of tigers or whatever. It's so great. Yeah, like his death scene is just so fun. Like he's just like, Odin, I'm gonna go fight these fucking wolves. Ragnar and Hail Ragnar's beard. Jesus Christ, I love Ernest Borgnine in this movie. He's so good. So, Ernest Borgnine is having the fucking time of his life in this movie. And I think my other favorite might be Bridget, <laughs> the lady who plays. <laughs> the horny lady in waiting. Yes. Who's like, I don't know if you take the scars off his face. He's, like, he's, he's pretty hot. I mean, for a barbarian, of course. And her screaming when they go and they finally capture Morgana and she's just screaming, my lady, in the most high-pitched, shrieky voice. Kirk Douglas is like tossing her around like a sack of potatoes. And Kirk Douglas is just finally like, here, go. Here's your lady. Stop <laughs> whining. Oh, my God. Dandy Nichols is her name as she plays Bridget, and she's just all in on it. Yeah, what about the uh, most egalitarian scene where Eric is like, you know, we'd go a lot faster if you two started rowing too, and Morgana's like, well, I, I mean, I can't row. I I, it's like, that's really, it's easy. Like, it's not that hard. Oh, well, my uh, my course is too tight. <laughs> He's like, my bodice is too tight. What's a bodice? It's this dress I'm wearing. <laughs> Which, uh, uh, honestly, the bodice probably was too tight. It probably was. Poor excuse. Poor excuse. But then her lady's like, mine's not too tight. (laughs) (laughs) This dress I'm wearing, 
It's too tight right in there. Oh, oh, oh! Mine isn't too tight. That was pretty great. <laughs> well, the thing that I love about that. Okay, so continuity errors. Oh, there's a few in this. The, the worst one to me, anyway, is the fact that they switch seats. So they're rowing and they're rowing and they're <laughs> rowing. And he's in the back so that he can rip her bodice open, right? But then when right. the Viking ships find them from the front somehow, I don't know how they're running away, but like the Viking ships are like, oh no, they found us from the direction we were escaping to. And they were behind us before, but whatever. But like all of those seats, they like the women were now in back and the men were in the front and all of them suck at rowing. Yes, they do. So that's very nice that like Tony Curtis can't row a boat either. They probably bonded over that. They're just like slightly slapping the water. Like growing up in Minnesota, we have 10,000 fucking lakes, so everybody learns how to canoe in school. And it's like you learn how, how awful it is to, to row when you're very young here. It is the slowest thing ever. <laughs> right? and you could see it. That's one of those weird, like, tiny things that bothers me in films. When I see it, I'm like, you are not rowing. You are getting nowhere. You are barely touching the water paddle. What the hell? Speaking of boats... One of the most surprising things that this movie got really right was that, believe it or not, the three Viking ships they used were designed using blueprints for an actual Viking ship that was salvaged from the water and were stored by a Viking museum in Norway. But it turns out that while it is accurate that Vikings were big and strong people compared to like the average inhabitant of Great Britain at the time... They were still smaller than us, like smaller than the average American. So the boats were basically too accurate because the modern actors were taller than their historical counterparts. So they didn't have space to sit and row without running their oars into the dude in front of them. So they basically had to plug every other oar hole and make them sit at every other oar so that they would have room to oar, which is kind of hilarious. So. Really accurate, and from the outside, it probably looked fine, although it, they may have been missing every other oar. They had to make it less accurate to make it look accurate. Just to make people fit, yeah. But the the boats themselves are like, you know, arguably one of the most accurate Viking longboat that's ever been built and put on the water. Now, that thing where they run on the, the oars. So they, of course, originally were planning on sort of doing long shots of that with stuntmen and the stuntmen practiced for weeks to do the oar running scene. But Kirk Douglas, who again, Kirk Douglas, you know, inserted himself into the production of this film. And since he was a child wanted to play a Viking. So he was like super stoked on this and it was his first time doing it. And so he told director Richard Fleischer that he wanted to do it and he did it several times. At one point when he did it, he did fall in the icy water it's not a scene we see in the film because in the film he falls in halfway, but he never like mm-hmm. fully falls in the water. But apparently in one of these shots, he fell all the way into the water and then he calmly swam over to the camera boat and asked them they had gotten good shots and then swam back to the Viking longboat. Again, as a reminder, I'm sure they were in Norway in the spring or the summer. It wasn't like the winter or anything like that. So they weren't going to die, but it was They're still fucking cold. And the director noted 
that they were watching and filming an activity that had not been done in a thousand years. So now whether that last statement is accurate or not, I don't know, but it is cool that that's something that in some saga or somewhere is recorded as Vikings doing it. And Kirk Douglas really did do it. And it's kind of a nice kind of comedic break as you watch the other actors kind of fail fall in the water and fail. And, and there's a point where you see that Kirk Douglas has failed because he's all wet. Well, yeah, he fall. Well, he, he slips and he falls and he like falls halfway in, but then they catch him and like, right. Yes, and it's, yep. and it's interesting. I mean, that's a dude who is where some of that, some of the natural charisma of the performer, but also just the, the bravado of the character itself isn't necessarily so full of itself that it always has, that he always has to be seen as succeeding. You know, like Einar is mm-hmm. not a narcissist. He's very full of himself, but he's not like mm-hmm. sociopathic about it where it's like he fall, he falls in the water. Like he fucks up. He's having a good time. Everybody helps him into the boat. Nobody's like, fuck you swim back. Like they're just like help him up in the boat. He's laughing. All the girls who want to fuck him back on land are laughing. And it's like, oh, he fell in the water. That Einar. Right. It's it's endearing. It's endearing. And everybody just is having a good time. Everybody's having such a good time in this movie. Most of the time. Yeah. Vikings are definitely in general depicted as loving life. It's like the whole lust for life kind of thing, which is another Kirk Douglas movie that isn't about Vikings. But, you know. Yeah, like by comparison, when you see the Northumbrian, you know, royal court and stuff, you're like, oh, this place looks boring and everyone seems kind of depressed. And it's like, here's a forced marriage between the king and this young girl. And then here's our pit of like angry, hungry dogs. And I'm like, this place looks depressing as fuck, (laughs) despite the fact that their outfits were very bright and colorful, which is actually pretty historically accurate so that is one place where our research shows that the again my tendency wants to be to say the english but england was not a unified country at this point because this is prior to 1066 so why did something happen in 1066 yeah but we'll have to talk about that in a different episode (laughs) so the northumbrian outfits of Pretty bright colors, tunics, although some of them are a bit too long, are relatively accurate. Now, this is interesting. If any listener sees any horned helmets being worn by the Vikings at any point in this film, please let us know. Because I notice in the goofs that it says the Vikings did not wear horned helmets. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. But also, I didn't see a single horned helm in this entire film which is points to these 1950s producers. They did a pretty good job of not falling into the whole, well, let's dress them like Wagner did in the opera from, I'm guessing the 19th century and put horns on all these helms. So this is one of those things where you have to give credit to the producers from the 1950s for this, because had they depicted the Vikings with horned helmets, it would have been like not that unusual for the time. It would have still been historically inaccurate. However, some more recent discoveries. So in the forties, they discovered some horned helms in parts of Denmark that now they think came through trade and probably originated maybe in Sardinia in the Mediterranean, but had been buried ceremonially as part of some Viking ceremony. But what is updated about it is that recently archeologists found some sap on one of these horns and they were able to carbon date that. And they carbon dated these horned helms to 3,000 years ago. Oh, Jesus. So 1,500 years prior to the Vikings. 
And it turns out that as one would expect, if you think about it logically, these horned helms were probably used in religious ceremonies and burial ceremonies and that kind of thing. Because, of course, anyone who studies combat would tell you that wearing a horned helmet in combat is a horrible idea because anyone you'd be fighting in close quarters, if the helmet is strapped to your head, can grab one of these horns and now control your head and kill you pretty easily. Which is the reason why, in reality, Vikings did not have horned helmets in combat like anybody else. So there is a historical place for horned helms, but they are A, not Viking, and B, probably never used in actual combat. They're more of a ceremonial function. Maybe used once, possibly twice, but... And then they learned. Then you learn things. I mean, you live and learn. And then to to finish up on the historical accuracy of the outfits... The furs and the lots of black wearing, like black darker colors that Kirk Douglas and sort of the nobles are doing is pretty inaccurate. Again, they would have been wearing a lot of linen and woven things, and they probably would have been colorful because, again, color indicated status. And back in this time, as we see from a ton of pre-World War I combat troops... The idea of whether a color was going to make you harder to hit or not was just not a thing. Like nowadays, it's all about camouflage, right? You want troops no, to- It's like, maybe we should blend in with the mud of our trenches. <laughs> yeah, but right. that didn't even- That came about Revolutionary War in America era is mm-hmm. about when they started actually worrying about that shit because it started actually fucking mattering with the a proliferation of gunpowder. Exactly. So with firearms, that would obviously become more important because you are now a target at a at a longer distance than you would be in close quarters combat. But another thing, if you think about it, and in a time where communication in battle was difficult, and if you think about it, battle in general in these melees would have been super chaotic and more similar to like a riot than anything Mm -hmm. else. So having at least your leaders wearing colorful outfits and being able to identify who your leaders were and where they were trying to lead you once you were talking about hundreds if not thousands of men in combat fighting each other was actually a useful communication tool so it was less about trying to blend in and more about trying to stick out which of course is a double-edged sword because you do read accounts of leaders being killed by you know arrowheads to the face because being dressed in bright red or bright orange or bright yellow was making you a target, but it was also allowing your troops to see where you were at and where you were leading them. So just a very different concept of combat than we think of when we look into, again, World War One probably being the first time it was employed on a mass scale of people being dressed in drab and grays and browns and trying to blend into the background. So the outfits that we see Kirk Douglas and Ernest Borgnine wearing of sort of um, leather outfits with like metal patches. Rivulets. Yeah, rivulets, staple, like extremely inaccurate and really more of a representation of theater Mm -hmm. from the last hunt from the previous hundred years than it was of any accurate depiction of the Vikings. I would guess that also a little bit falls into the time frame of this is what feels appropriate in the fifties for a Viking to be wearing. So this is what we're going to go with because that stuff often just very difficult for leather and soft goods to survive hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So it's not like there's a whole lot of examples of that type of thing, especially in this era. One thing that I noticed this time around, and I don't know why it caught my eye, but I, I, I did have a question about it. 
is the flags that were on the castle. They had some interesting heraldry on them that I can't imagine dates back to the ninth century. And I was curious, like if they would have had them at all and would they have looked like that? I, I could be making this up, but I like one of the things on it looked like the fleur de lis. Yeah, that would not have necessarily been accurate. It looks like that kind of stuff really didn't get started until 11th, 12th century is when we're seeing like coats of arms. And right. so I did not think I was going to bring up this super nerdy piece of trivia. But since <laughs> Liam is asking an extremely specific <laughs> and nerdy question, I'm just going to read this directly. Am I the only one that noticed the flags? Yes. <laughs> Shut up, Katie. <laughs> We're talking about a time period, you know, a couple of hundred years before England became a unified nation. Yeah, I'm like, you didn't even have a country. Like, how are you going to have flags on your building? Exactly. So, according to the trivia, the answer is that the Northumbrian flag, a complex banner flying from the tops of Aella's castle towers, would not have existed in this period. The Viking Age preceded formalized heraldry by centuries. Notice it says formalized heraldry in general, not even like English heraldry. Hmm. Northumbria did have a flag, as many pre-heraldic kingdoms did. It was a counter-changing banner of eight vertical stripes, red or purple, and gold. It is also unlikely that Ayala's soldiers would have had shields bearing heraldic devices. Yeah, they look like Templars. They do. If the shields, a red X on a white background, were meant to signify St. George's Cross, which today stands for England in the UK's Union Jack, that is also anachronistic. The symbol was not used until centuries later, and it was a cross, vertical and horizontal members, instead of a saltier, which is diagonal members. So there you go, Liam. There's a fucking way nerdier answer than I thought I was going to be talking about on about this podcast. You're welcome. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And now it's time for the breakdown. It's the point in the show when we discuss what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? God, we just can never fire him. Look how he's just so on point. Perfection. I'm here. I'm here for the perfection. Katie, I'll give you first crack at this. What are, you, uh, what are your thoughts? So what's it going for? What's the aim? I think that... From what I read and watching the film, I think that really the aim of this film was to be a historically accurate picture of the Vikings and tell this story that is kind of both legend and reality. And they try to do that with beautiful production values, like the cinematography in this. We didn't get too much of the making of stuff, but this is a beautifully shot movie. And I watched it on streaming and I was still just blown away by how gorgeous so many. Oh, yeah. It looks real good on Prime. So great. Sets are beautiful. Like they really strove to have this sense of reality, even though now, obviously, we know that reality is not really accurate. At the time, I'm sure it felt very immersive. Well, they even had a throwaway line to explain why Kirk Douglas doesn't have a beard. Yes, I loved that. Did you read about why Kirk Douglas didn't have a beard? No. Kirk Douglas also did not have a beard being a producer and having some say in things because he bet every like main actor on the set, he basically challenged them to see who could have the best beard by the time production started. 
And so every <laughs> other actor other than I think other than Tony Curtis showed up with like their biggest best beard and then Kirk Douglas showed up completely clean shaven. <laughs> So I think it was kind so it was of just a, fucking with everybody. He was kind of fucking with everyone. And it was kind of an inside joke, but I thought that was funny. And and they they give these wonderful performances, despite the content of the film and Kirk Douglas in general, as we've talked about. Everybody is giving their A game. I think Richard Fleischer, the director in particular, is really great at crafting a compelling story out of something that I, I will agree with the critics on this is that it is a very basic story. It is something we've seen before. Nothing in this is new, but I think it still works. And I think for me, at least Fleischer makes it interesting because it's not something we see a whole lot of, especially in the fifties. You know, this was a big budget film for this era and it did tremendously well. I think it hit its mark as well as it could have in that time frame. You know, obviously we know a lot more about that era now, but, you know, I, I think it's hard to watch this movie and not get sucked in. You know, in particular, Ernest Borgnine gives just this masterful performance that he's a, technically a side character, but for me, he's what really steals the show because he's so into what he's doing. And I like it. Hmm. I still don't know, honestly. <laughs> I, I like some of it. I really like some of it because I do love these kinds of classic historical epics. And, you know, I love Janet Lee and Tony Curtis. And it's interesting, but it's also super fucking rapey, which I don't like at all. While also being in that aspect, awkwardly historically accurate. So this one I had to, I, I watched on my own. I liked it enough that before we premiere this episode, I'll probably have my husband watch it with me so that he has more perspective. So, so you'll watch it again. I'll watch it again, which is not, which for me is not an indication of whether or not I liked something. I've watched really shitty movies that I hated again, just to just really hate it even more or to show someone else. Look at how awful this crap is. Oh man. I never do that. Cause I'm a masochist. So, you know, that's me. But it's not really necessarily whether or not I liked it. I thought it was a good film and worth watching. And therefore, it's worth seeing again. So I'm kind of in the middle. And maybe I'll watch it again and I'll, I'll tweet out an update of, actually, guys, I hated this shit. Or I loved it. But for <laughs> now, I'm saying I need to see it again to really judge how I emotionally feel about it. Mm -hmm. Dan, you ready? I'm ready. Do it. Let's hear it. Once again, I, I tend to not take part in the selection of our films, mostly because I really enjoy the educational part of this for myself. And I'm sure there's part of the audience that uh, feels this way about just kind of seeing what comes down the pipe. And especially when I haven't been exposed to it before, just kind of absorbing it for the first time, which is really interesting to me, especially when someone else like Liam in this case has seen it many, many times. So I think the objective here was to, for the time especially, to depict a Viking epic that was more gritty and realistic compared to older things that have been done, you know, the Wagner play and older books. One thing that Dave mentioned is that this is also the first big budget production on the Vikings post-World War II after the Nazis had famously kind of glorified 
the sort of Aryan Scandinavian background and race, and they were into. Oh man, all, that's interesting. And they were into. If you study the Nazis, Hitler and the rest of his cadre were into all this occult stuff, and so I'm sure that led into some of the Norse mythology and all that kind of thing. So this was the first certainly American production trying to take the Viking story from the Nazis and talk about it in a little bit more historically accurate way. And so this is one of those films that you really have to view through a relative lens. You have to be kind of objective about it because you're like, okay, here's my opinion as a modern viewer, but really what is this like as a 1950s audience a you know recently out of World War II audience and that kind of changes things a lot not to mention like we said again that if you go back to the original lore the original lore is out of date and confusing and can't even agree where some of these characters originated from in terms of the country so very vague and murky and there's a lot of blending of reality and myth here that's going on so you can only hold the filmmakers responsible for so much of that because the material they were working with in the first place is kind of a mixed origin. Were they successful? One thing I didn't get a chance to talk about during the episode is the sort of the combat and the fighting. And even there, we have kind of a mix of things. So the fighting in the film is pretty inaccurate, even though it's fun. When you see the general combat in groups. There's a lot of, again, running around and rubber swords and people just kind of swinging. That guy getting the arrow through the neck that had to have looked real in the 50s, but right. maybe not. They tried. I know. We watched Throne of Blood and those arrows are way better. He's been shot at from the front, but the arrow comes in from behind. And it, that is in the in the goofs and the trivia. But I actually also noticed that when I was watching it, which, again, it's rare for me to notice a small detail like that. But, yeah, I, I think as Dave, our resident sword nerd, points out, swords were kind of not in great supply at this time to have a sword that was properly made in the first place you had to be some kind of nobleman because it cost money and so a typical viking raiding party would more likely have had axes and spears and then the more wealthier individuals would have had swords the other thing is that slashing around with your sword and parrying and hitting with the edge of your sword is a, a gr and dave has a lot of experience in actual medieval sword fighting that's like kind of the main thing that he does and he says that's a great way to break your sword, to literally shatter it. Like he's done that before, especially if they're not uh, constructed that well. So really with these swords, which if you look at the mythological sword that's in this film, the one with the, the jewel in the... Uh, the pommel. In the pommel, exactly. The sword requiter. So that sword is in shape. It's pretty historically accurate. So kind of this longer. Was that a real fucking sword? No, I don't think. Or is that just made up for this? I, no, I mean, that was a prop. But the style that that sword is made in is relatively accurate. And these swords were mostly meant for someone to hold a shield in one hand and basically be stabbing or poking with the other hand. The idea was to penetrate the enemy's defenses through stabbing action, not necessarily through slashing, which again is a great way to either break mm -hmm. your sword or dull the edge of your sword. So the group fighting is relatively inaccurate, but again, for the time is kind of par for the course. 
But the highly choreographed fight that they have at the end between Einar and Eric is great. Oh, it's so fucking good. Mm-hmm. The fight itself is well choreographed and relatively realistic. I also really enjoyed the vertical dimension that they added to it with the camera up top. Oh, yeah. The cinematography there is just... Just phenomenal. And right? I think Liam has brought this up before, but uh, if you watch The Secret of Nim, uh, The Secret of Nim famously either rotoscoped or pulled directly from several fights, uh, sword fights from famous films. And one of them is definitely this particular fight. Mostly this one. Yeah, mostly this. Like the other, there's like a little element here and there from something else, like the adventures mm-hmm. of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. Right. But this like frame by frame was used in Secret of Nim by Don Bluth, which again, I don't blame them. It's such a well choreographed fight that it just really looks awesome. So, And it's one of those, the perspective that they do with the, like you said, with the top down and they're like, that that vertical aspect really gives you a sense of vertigo while they're having this really rough sword fight. Yeah, so great. And the sword does break. It does. Yeah, it so does. So that's, that, that, that checks out. Yeah, so <laughs> the the armor and the swords and the shields themselves, like, relatively accurate. The sort of combat depicted in it, it depends on the scene. Again, the group fighting is kind of iffy, but that last scene is great. So kind of a mixed bag there. But in terms of were they successful if the goal was to make a, again, the caveat here be more gritty and realistic depiction of the Vikings, I would say yes. Once you factor in the period it's made in the 50s, plus the vagueness of the old and kind of mixed historically accurate sagas, I would say that, yes, they did a good job for the information that they had at the time. Again, for every instance of something they screwed up or something that wasn't that accurate, you can also bring up an instance of, again, like one of the most realistic depictions ever of a real Viking longboat put on camera at the time that they built from scratch. So, you know, you got to give them a lot of credit for that. So did I like it? Yeah, I, you know, I haven't seen a lot of films like this from the 50s, but I, when I wasn't entertained, I was fascinated. And when I was pulled out because maybe something wasn't that realistic, I was entertained. Like all the drinking scenes, I'm like, this is kind of crazy. And I don't know if this has really happened, but like the scene is entertaining as fuck, like for sure. Like there, and Everyone seems to be having such a blast, both the characters and most of the actors, rape scenes aside, that, you know, a lot of these scenes are enjoyable to watch because you're just like, this just looks like a smashing good time. So I don't know that I would seek this out to watch it again personally for fun, the way Liam has many, many times because he grew up with it. I think from a film history perspective, this is definitely an important film and kind of a first of its kind i haven't watched the tv series vikings yet but while i know that that has some mixed historical accuracy in it people really love it and i'm also really excited for uh robert eggers the northman coming out soon Mm. with i think that's what is it this year or next year with alexander skarsgård i think it's still on the fence because of covid i mean whatever happens with that the one thing we know about robert eggers based on the witch and the lighthouse is that he was a production designer before that so his eye for costumes production design the setting and all of that is very very good so i'm really curious to see where that lands on historical accuracy versus the actual just experience of the film so yeah 
I got to thank Liam once again for picking a weird film from the 50s that I had never heard of. And now I'd love to hear his take on it. So I think you guys are pretty spot on with the objective. I think they were really intent on doing right by the source material of the book and the historical source material of the the Vikings. But Kirk Douglas was a a showman, very, very well versed in the ways of Hollywood, obviously. And like I was watching the credits and I didn't see him listed as the producer, but after everything else, it says a Kirk Douglas production. And in the trailer, it very loudly says a Kirk Douglas production. <laughs> Kirk Douglas was the driving artistic force behind this movie getting produced. My last interruption on trivia. Oh, go ahead. Did you notice that this is one of those rare examples of fifties films where the credits are at the end. They don't yes. do this like yes. super long drawn out credits at the beginning. Right. Well, and so not only did they not do the credits at the beginning, but that's because they had to have that intro voiced by fucking Orson Wells. Oh, right. <laughs> That's right, Orson fucking Wells <laughs> in an uncredited voice performance. So good. So I, yes. Awesome. Good times. It's a pretty straightforward objective. The criticism that it's a basic plot. Like if you watch the trailers for this movie, the plot is not what they were going for. It has a plot that takes you from point A to point B to point C perfectly well. It's fine. <laughs> It's a stock plot. You know what I mean? It's something that you can put into a lot of different genres and a lot of different eras and periods and still have roughly the same basic outline and you just dress it up different. This movie dresses it up so fucking well. Yes, I agree. The cinematography on it, it's not even just that the cinematography is great, which it is, but the draw of the movie was like, hey, Come with us to the fjords. We're going to show you some shit. Like, that's the idea of this movie is we're going to take you on this grand adventure to a place that your ass is never going to see in your life. We went to Norway, so you don't have to. <laughs> is the is the the big selling point what of the this trailer movie. should have said. <laughs> it's it's basically what it did say. Like, that's you know, it does the 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 Shakespearean thing. It promises sex, death and blood. And it delivers on all of those things very quickly. So I remember when I first saw this, actually, when my dad showed it to me, it was interesting because he had warned me that Kirk Douglas gets his eye eaten out by a hunting hawk. He wanted to give me that heads up because I was probably too young to watch the movie. And I was like, oh, okay, no, I'm prepared for that. I get it. And then it happened and it was shocking. And it was gruesome and visceral. And I fucking flinched like somebody threw a punch at me. Uh, But not so much because of the actual event, but like in my mind, it's like, oh yeah. And Kirk Douglas gets his eye eaten out by a hunting hawk. How is that not the climax of the film? Like that's some (laughs) like third real kind of shit. And it was like, I was like, I didn't know it was going to be like 10 minutes into the movie. Like what's, what's going to happen next if he's getting his eye eaten out now. <laughs> so yes, it is incredibly violent. He loses an eye. Eric loses a hand. I might be the only one who did this, but did anybody else when they were little, like, and you go to like, I don't know, a movie theater or a baseball game or something where they gave you 
just a giant paper cup full of pop. And then you drink it. And then like, sometimes I'd like put it, my hand into the cup and pretend that I'd had my hand cut off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's probably something I did. Like as a you kid, do. Yeah. Like, like, you I mean, do. like kids do weird shit like that. Right, right? right. Yes. I would have hoped that they had better technology than my like five-year-old ass sitting at the ball game with like a cup on my hand being like, I lost a hand. But nope, <laughs> apparently not. They wrapped yeah. some like fucking gaffers tape around it and called it a day. Yep. Well, I I was going to ask you about that. I just like didn't get a chance. But when you pretend like you lose a leg and of course, we're talking about 1950s pre CGI, pre all of that. But back then you lose a leg and okay, so you you fold your leg back and you tape, you know, your ankle back to the back of your thigh and with the right camera angles and the right, you know, whatever, you can kind of make it look like you really lost the leg. But is there a better way to look like you lost a hand without losing a hand in the 1950s? I don't know. What do you do? No. And they, and they tried, they really did try. Cause it's a hand is not an easy thing to lose. Cause you can't fold it back. You can't like right. uh, shorten the length of the arm. That's the problem. Yeah. That's, that's where they really run into problems with it. And Tony Curtis has just straight up like bare arms in this. <laughs> yeah. So they, they tried, they tried to play with perspective. Mm. And they tried when possible to keep it wrapped in furs. Right. And they tried to keep it in the dark. But dude, when you fight, like when you just point that shit straight at the camera, like it's supposed to be a 3d movie and I'm supposed to duck. Like you can't do that. Like you have to got to try harder. The lost hand is the worst part of the cinematography of this movie. Like, it is the antithesis of the sword fight at the end is how they is how they filmed that that hand not being there anymore, but obviously still being there. Yeah, he really should have just kept his hand like taped behind his back, like his arm taped behind his back the whole time. And that would have been that would have been better than what they did. But yeah, like so like I've watched this movie my whole life. I think it was very much on target for what it for what it was trying to do. Did I like it? Yes, obviously I love it. I I love this movie like one loves any movie. Like this is kind of to me what the Terminator is to Dan, where it's just like that movie that you've oh. been watching since you were six. Fair, fair. Isn't it nice to not have your friend shit all over your favorite movie? Like no, well, also mine's better than yours, but <laughs> oh, I knew it was coming. So also, you guys kind of set me up in that one where you're both coming at me like, oh, Liam's going to shit on my favorite movie. Like, what am I supposed to do? Not shit on it then? No, no. You, like, you fulfilled your role exactly right. I, I did exactly it. what you you set them up. I'll keep knocking them down. I still have yet to think of my favorite movie for us to watch on the podcast that everybody can do that. You'll find one. And if you say Liam's going to shit on it, guess what I'm going to do? <laughs> but no, I love this movie. However, and it's a. It's a big however. I really don't know if there is a place for films like this in society anymore. With the light way that it treats rape and violence against women, it does and I'm and I'm trying to think if there's a non-toxic part of the masculinity in this film. Maybe the relationship between Ragnar and Einar is a positive thing but even that's pretty that is surrounded by toxic things yeah i mean he literally tells his son go rape this lady it'll be good for her but i think the 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 love and respect 
that they have for one another could in some level be seen as wholesome. But like, there's so very little about this movie that isn't wildly problematic. Like it's the cinematography isn't problematic, but like everything else is like a little bit fucked up (laughs) whenever reasonably possible. I try to let my son watch the movies that we, that we discuss on this podcast because he likes listening to the podcast when it's something that, uh, that he's seen and is uh, relevant to his interests. My daughters like them as well, but like they don't always, they, they just don't always have the interest to, to listen and I was like, no, I could show, I could show Kieran the, the Vikings. I watched it when I was younger than he was. And then I started thinking about it and I was like, yeah, I don't know if I want the 1950s version of Viking rape and conquest, something that he experiences in his formative years that is that the movie doesn't take a dim view of. Isn't it also kind of complicated as a parent to have to have a conversation about rape depiction in films before you've even really had the birds and the bees conversation about like real life? At 11, you definitely have already had that conversation about birds and the bees with your child. Yeah, you, t- you totally have. So this is how, how Kieran initiated the sex talk with me. I was in my room and I think I was like making the bed and he came in and he starts helping me and he goes, dad. What is sex? <laughs> oh, God. And he was like maybe, wow. maybe eight years old, probably seven. And I was like, well, how do you mean? Like, are we talking about like biological sex? Are we talking about like the physical? And he was like, what is the sex that people tell jokes about? It doesn't narrow it down that much, honestly. <laughs> and I, honestly, it did. I was like, oh, okay. Now I know exactly what we're talking <laughs> about. So he knows that like people make sex jokes and he wanted to know what those jokes were so that he, nothing was uh, going okay. over his okay. head. I get that. But like that absolutely fucking killed me. I was like, that is the most. Okay. Yes. Let's have that conversation right now. Now that you framed it like that, I know exactly how to have this <laughs> talk. <laughs> But yeah, so, and I actually talked to him about it where I was like, so buddy, I don't know if I'm like really torn if I want you to watch this. Cause I grew up watching it and I love it. And your grandfather grew up watching it and he loves it, but man, I really don't know if it's a good thing. I mean, cause the Vikings are awesome in this. Like they're really cool. They're fun. They're partying. They're playing a uh, fucking tug of war over an open fire. Right. Yeah. They're the heroes for sure. Definitely the heroes to the point where like, when so after the scene that you're talking about, Katie, where he's like, "Yeah, no, yeah. go ahead, rape her. She's yours. She's yours." Kirk Douglas's exit from the I don't know what they call it, longhouse party room, whatever it is, but like when he's walking outside, like throwing furs on him, and he's drunk as fuck, and he's like, "I'm gonna go rape her," la da da, and he's just like throwing dudes yes. off the boat. <laughs> oh God, that was hilarious. Morgana and I want to be alone. I'm like, this isn't even necessary, dude. You're like right. in charge of this village. Just tell I know, him to get but off it's the boat. So much fun. Like that's the thing. Like when he's walking out of that, like he's walking across the tables and he's like, I'm going to make her scream. till they hear her back in Wales? Like, oh God. but the fucked up thing is that like, you're actually sort of like on board. You're like, yeah, go wait. What? <laughs> Like his charisma is just such that it's just like, oh, that you're guy's like going out to like, for him and they're like, wait, wait, you're going to do what? <laughs> yeah. Wait, hang on. Hang on a second. Cause like, I mean, it's <laughs> the dialogue is funny. 
His delivery is funny. He's real excited about it. Everybody's excited <laughs> for him. His dad's all happy about it. Like, and I'm just like, I don't know if that's a mentality that any amount of talking about it and contextualizing about it afterwards right. is going to be able to be removed from an 11 year old's no, brain. That's, that's pretty fucking fair. I gotta say, you know what I mean? Like, so I, I actually told him not like in great detail, but I was like, here's why I don't want you to watch this movie is because the Vikings attitudes towards women are, and he goes stupid. I mean, and I was like, yes, that's one way of putting it. <laughs> Yes, to put it mildly, stupid. They viewed them as property and as a thing that they could take and do what they wanted with as a part of conquest. And I'm not saying that the film's completely accurate about how it tre- how they treated their own women, but the women that they take as far as like, I've conquered your lands and now I have this woman now belongs to me and I can do what I want with her. Like, it is not good. And I don't want that to be a thing that's in your head now. But yes, I love this movie. <laughs> it's just, it's just, I don't, I don't think that it has a place anymore. I think it served whatever purpose it was going to serve. And again, from an artistic standpoint, it is fabulously well done. It was influential in its cinematography and its fight choreography. There's some fucking like goofy ass lines in this movie that like the secondary characters get into that. I can't even like, I can't even begin to go through all of them, but just like the, the extras in this movie were rough where it's like, Oh, say the Vikings uh, is a line that like my dad and his friends made fun of when they were little, it was the you rebel scum of the time. I got to call out um, Almut Berg. The woman who's being held in Odin's uh, trial that the picture, there's a picture of her on IMDb, her IMDb picture, if you will, is her in that contraption with her, right. her breasts, as Dan said, very prominently displayed. And there's an her breasts axe, in like, the breast holder yep, yep, right. just to her left. And she's looking down at it like she had such an interesting character arc. It, she does. Where like you first see her and she's sucking face with Kirk Douglas. And then you next time you see her, she's on trial for sucking face with Kirk Douglas. Right? right? She's like, what the fuck? And then the next time you see her, she's trying to suck face with Kirk Douglas again. And he's like, maybe you should just go back to your husband. Oh my God. Like this movie is so fucking all over the place in its sexual politics. I don't even understand how it's possible that this movie was made ever. But I don't know that it's one that I would, or I would not encourage just anybody to see it. Okay, fair enough. So uh, now that we've talked this one into the into the ground, what uh, what are we doing next, guys? Next, we're doing the very famous and often requested 1998 Steven Spielberg film, Saving Private Ryan. This is going to be a big one. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you guys are too. Tune in next time for that episode. That's the one with Edward Burns, right? And Barry Pepper and a young Vin Diesel. Yes. And also Mr. Rogers, Tom Hanks. So thanks guys for tuning in to another riveting episode of Danger Close. If uh, you want to join in on the conversation and you happen to be in uh, Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse, you should join our Facebook discussion group. It's a Danger Close podcast discussion group. 
Uh, we have a, a good old rowdy time there. And if you want to hear me shit on Dan's favorite movies, you should sign up for our Patreon, become a patron, and you get an extra bonus episode, our Danger Close Enough feed, where we discuss all sorts of movies that are kind of maybe war film related, but not really. Four bucks a month, you get to have an extra an extra episode. So thank you all very much for tuning in. See you on the next episode. Bye! We have our Morty clip. Morty, stop <laughs> biting my foot. Get out of here. So we haven't done an after action report in a while. And usually we wait till a mistake has been pointed out. And this is the place where we can correct those mistakes. So I have to go back to our We Were Soldiers episode. I did a lot of shitting on that movie. I stand by 99% of the shitting that I did on that movie. I know a lot of people like it. I made very clear why I dislike that movie and why I dislike the filmmaking. But I was telling my mom the story, uh, the whole like racial scene with the, uh, I can't remember if it's whites only or no coloreds or what the, it was the wives, right? The, the army wives who were talking, right. And they're, they're new to Fort Benning and they're trying to get together to figure out, you know, which supermarket is best and where do you do laundry and whatever. And uh, I looked her up now. I can't remember the name of the actor, but um, the new girl is like, oh, yeah, I found a good laundromat because laundromats on base suck. But for some reason, you can only do your whites there. They won't let you do your coloreds. And of course, the wives have to inform her, including the one black wife who's in the club that, oh, no, they mean people. They mean white people only, not white clothing only. And I was telling my mom this story, just kind of laughing about it. Be like, look at this ridiculous writing. And like, how could someone in 1965 in Georgia not know, blah, blah, blah. And my mom was like, well, funny you mentioned that because my student Dick, who was a pilot in the Navy around this time, his wife, who grew up in Berkeley, had this exact experience. And I'm like, oh, you mean she didn't know what like the signs meant? She's like, no, like she went to a laundromat and thought, came home and told him that the laundromat only took whites and not colors and that she didn't know where to wash his colored clothes. And he had to explain to her what the sign meant. And I was like, son of a bitch. So, <laughs> so there's at least one real life incident of this thing happening. Damn you, Randall Wallace. Of all of the historical accuracies he could have chosen to go with. Exactly. So I know one person who this has happened to. And so I dug a little deeper before I would call uncle to be like, okay, but where was this lady from? But some people can just be, you know, not not the brightest. That That's true. And, and it depends on how sheltered you were. And in the 60s, like, it's possible, I guess, you might have not had a TV in the house or maybe your family didn't right. watch the there news. There was no internet. You couldn't get, there was no hashtagging. Right. There are possibilities. But again, it would require you to be from somewhere not in the South. If you were in the South, I imagine you were familiar with the situation. Yeah. So I dug into the character to find out where she was from. Turns out she grew up in Indianapolis. I'm pretty sure she was 20 when she got married. So not very experienced in life. And so I reached out in the group to find out if I could find any civilians from Indiana, specifically Indianapolis in the 60s. And I asked a couple of people and pretty much they were like, yeah, we didn't have any segregation. And so the question was, 
if you were moving from Indianapolis to Fort Benning, is it plausible that you may not have known what that sign meant? And, you know, both of the people I talked to from Indiana were like, yeah, it's plausible. So I'm a person who, like you guys, I think, likes to seek the truth. And when it's time to swallow my ego because I made a mistake, I'm happy to do that. So in this case, I judge Randall Wallace a little unfairly on this particular instance. And apparently it is plausible that that could have happened. I still hate the scene. I still don't like how it's written. I don't like it in the film. And I think it's very pandery. However, it's possible that that actually happened. So I have to give my apologies to the crowd. It's not completely implausible. So I will say, and as much as I would love to take this moment to dance on your grave, I I will actually have to go to bat for you on this because, again, it is plausible that a person who had never been to the South in the 60s, had no real interaction with it, was like completely oblivious to the racial injustice that was faced by African-Americans in the South in the 60s then and to this day across the country. However, wouldn't that require? So, again, maybe this is just me not really understanding the time period and the quote unquote duties of the housewife. But does that mean that like you moved there and the very first thing that you did was go to the laundromat? Because we're talking swimming pools. We're talking water fountains. We're talking movie theaters. We're talking public transportation. All of it had whites only signs on some section of something. Well, here's, here's a really important part of that question. And I don't know the answer to this. They lived on base at Fort Benning, Georgia. So if segregation wasn't being practiced in that way on base, which is a likely possibility because there were obviously black people in the U.S. military and it seems kind of weird that they would have had segregation on base in that way. Water fountains, you know, et cetera. That late in the year or in the century, at least. I don't know. But for the sake of argument, let's say segregation was not practiced on base. The whole plot is that the base machines are broken and half of them don't work. So she had to go out into town to use a laundromat. And so ostensibly, if a housewife who's doing all the housewife duties, going to the PX, getting food, taking care of the kids, taking them to school, whatever, if most of that was happening on base and base was not segregated, then it's quite possible that that may have been the first time she went out into town for a business related thing and saw one of those signs. For sure. But again, like we're talking bathrooms. Right. And I don't think it implies that she does not understand what is going on in the world of the South in America. It's just, she's not familiar with the signage. She's never been exposed to signs like that. You know what I mean? So she could very well know that black people are being discriminated against. It's just that she's not used to seeing a sign that says whites only, I guess. I feel like it's one of those things that you can chalk it up to somebody being young and not and out of touch, but it's definitely a little bit of movie logic in my mind, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because we see lots of kind of movie logic used to explain these kinds of things and make a statement because obviously that comment is supposed to make a statement. But I don't know what statement it was supposed to make. In well, that movie. we're not racist. The statement was, oh, that's so terrible. I can't believe they're doing that. Right. Like the filmmaker wanted to show that they're not racist. That's my opinion. Yes, but it does not. Hashtag not all white people. Yeah. To me, it does not come across that way. To me, it comes across as smacking of ignorance and that's no better. And it could have happened. So I got to give Randall, I got to give Randall Wallace that one. Shame on you, Dan. Yes. I will eat all the crow on this one. As Douglas Adams so wonderfully clarified, anything is possible. Not everything is probable. 